0: We are continuing this worship series on the first letter to the Thessalonians, written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And in the context of the readings that I'm going to read for us today in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, a lot of commentators think that this is the particular concerns and the reasons why Paul was writing this letter. That a lot of what came before and what comes at the end is... Is sort of on the outlier, but this is the really crux. This is the reason why Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Some deep concerns in that community, and so if you'd like to follow along in the pew Bibles in front of you, you can do that. First Thessalonians chapter four verse thirteen through chapter five verse eleven, or you can follow along on the screen in front of you. Listen to God's word, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. ...about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord... ...will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangels call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, You do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or are asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think one of the difficulties of trying to interpret and understand a letter that's written is that we only have sort of one side of the story when it comes to a letter being written. If I were to interpret or to intercept a letter that's written by you to you, you only have sort of one side of the story of what's being taken place. And yet you can tell that there's such love and concern and sort of pastoral wisdom that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy want to share with the people in Thessalonica. You you can just tell there's something going on in that community, some kind of deep concern that's taking place. And they really want them to know... What's going to happen in the end? Paul is addressing some kind of deep concern in Thessalonica. And we don't know exactly what the concern is, but we know it has to do with, with what happens with those of us in our community who die. What happens with those of us in our community who perhaps were there for the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys and heard the good news and have died since they heard the good news? What happens with them? What happens with us when Jesus returns? If part of the gospel message is this idea that Jesus is going to come again, what does this mean for those in our community who have died? Um, Is there hope? Is there hope for them? Is there hope for persons who didn't hear this message beforehand? Is there hope for us? What does it look like to grieve the loss of others? Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, and to grieve as if you have no hope, because you do have hope. But he doesn't say not to grieve. So there's so much concern in this text. And you can just tell the, the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul is coming out. He, he wants to comfort the brothers and the sisters in Thessalonica. He wants to let them know that in their concerns, God will address them in their concerns. And in the pastoral wisdom that he shares, he offers Two things at least, more than two things, but two things seem to pop out to me as I read this text. One is that with Jesus' return, there is profound hope in Jesus' return for both the dead and for the living, and that we will somehow be united in that return. That there won't be a separation or a distinction for those who have died before us and those who are alive now that there's hope to be reunited with loved ones, with people in the community. And as much as the Apostle Paul wants us to be not uninformed, but to be informed about that time, he also says that the times and the seasons when the end comes, we have no idea. We have no idea about when the times and the season comes. And I had to chuckle this week as I was reading this scripture, because he uses a metaphor about not knowing when the end is coming, to relate it to when a woman who is pregnant goes into her labor pains. And I had to laugh because it was exactly one year ago today that I woke up in the middle of the night and I found my wife in labor. (laughs) And I had to send a text message to Ian Hamilton at 3 a.m. and say, I'm not coming to church today. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) See what happens. Have fun. And so you did a year ago. So Paul offers these two things. He says there's hope, there's real hope in Jesus' return. And we don't know the times though. We do not know the times. God is the one who knows the time and the seasons. God is the architect of these things. God is the architect of these things. And I think the concerns that he's addressing there, though we don't fully know all the concerns of that community, there's similar kinds of concerns in our lives as well about these questions around, where's hope? For the dead, for the living, for my life. What does hope look like in these kinds of questions and concerns? There's a very popular Christian author by the name of Rachel Held Evans. I don't know if that's a familiar name to those of us in this sanctuary or in this room. Um, she kind of became known as the, the author of the millennial Christians and she grew up in the south in an evangelical congregation and later on in her teenage years in her early 20s she left the church and though she had this vibrant faith with jesus and a vibrant faith with god she just found this growing disconnect between what she was experiencing in her relationship with god and with organized religion and wondered about where is my place of belonging in the midst of this relationship i have with god she just did not feel like she belonged in a church And she had this growing angst. And so for the early 2000s and the last 10 years or so, she wrestled with this question. And she wrote this great book called Searching for Sunday in 2015. And to some extent, this was like the book that, um, you'll see, I'm going to read a few sentences from it. And it just spoke to the angst and to the concerns of Christians who were millennials to some extent. So I want to read a few of these sentences that she wrote in this book. This is what she kept trying to tell other people as they tried to learn about what millennials wanted in a church. And she said this. She said, I told them we're tired of the culture wars, tired of Christianity getting entangled with party politics and power. Millennials want to be known by what we're for, I said, not just what we're against. We don't want to choose between science and religion or between our intellectual integrity and our faith. Instead, we long for our churches to be safe places to doubt, to ask questions and to tell the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. We want to talk about the tough stuff, biblical interpretation, religious pluralism, sexuality, racial reconciliation and social justice, but without predetermined conclusions or simplistic answers. We want to bring our whole selves through the church doors without leaving our hearts and minds behind, without wearing a mask. And I think this is that sentence where she said, but without predetermined conclusions or simplistic answers, they sort of endeared her to a whole generation of people. And she grew to having more than a couple hundred thousand of followers on Twitter. And a month ago, she got really sick and she had an infection and some kind of bacterial infection. She had to go to the hospital And when she got to the hospital, um, the doctors determined that she was also having some seizures. And so they put her in a medically induced coma. And for the next two weeks, a whole host of medical mystery was taking place with her condition. And doctors were unable to revive her and bring her out of that medically induced coma. And she died. And she was 37 years old and left behind a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a husband. What transpired in the next five days after she died was one of the most interesting social Christian phenomena I've ever seen. I told you that she felt this sense of not really finding a space of belonging in her Christian journey, but the place where she found the most belonging was through, through a community that was cultivated digitally on Twitter. And she had these hundreds of thousands of followers. And right after she died for five days, it was like the whole internet grieved they grieved the loss of her life. They mourned her, they quoted her words, they recalled times, they prayed with her, went to conferences with her, loved with her, were there with her in her life. And yet there was also a sort of witness about hope that was taking place too. This incredible hope that they had for the life that was lived amongst them in wrestling with these Questions that didn't have simplistic answers, as she says. Um, But there was a hope that was emanating from this grief that took place for five days. And it was like the whole world could have access to it. Uh, A hashtag started trending on Twitter, and all of these people from the outside started looking inside on this grief that was taking place. And ultimately the hope that was emanating from this really hard reality, from this really hard reality. And I think those concerns that were shared then are similar concerns that we have too. What hope is there? Where was God in that? Where was God in that? I think there's extremely good news in First Thessalonians chapter 5 when it comes to this wrestling, when it comes to this question. I'm not sure it provides for us a simple answer, but I think there's really good news in this scripture for us. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 It says this, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. One of my professors at Princeton Seminary wrote a commentary on Thessalonians, and she always took angst with this verse and the way it was translated in the NRSV. Uh, She was one of these brilliant scholars that knows Greek in and out. And she, in her commentary, retranslated this quote to this. From the Greek. She said, since we are children of the day, clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, let us be sober. Mm. What Beverly is trying to get at here is that in the NRSV, it makes it sound like when we're in these places of deep concern and mystery in our lives, that we are the ones that are supposed to put the clothes on ourselves. We're supposed to put the clothes of faith, love, and the helmet of hope onto ourselves. But she says, no, 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 no. The Greek got it totally wrong. It's because we're children of the day. God has given us this clothing. God is the one who's given us this clothing. We have not given it to ourselves. We are unable to put this on ourselves, but God has given it to us. God has clothed us with faith, love, and hope. And this to me is incredibly good news because I think this was the reality that was emanating on Twitter a few weeks ago. Perhaps this was the reality that was emanating amongst Timothy, Sylvanus and Paul as they wrote the letter. This true hope that God has given us this clothing, this armor, a biking helmet is perhaps more relevant than a helmet that is used in battle to some extent. A helmet of hope God has given to us. All week long I've been trying to think about what does this mean for a seven-year-old? What does 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 mean for a seven-year-old? Because it's family worship. I always ask myself this question before family worship if I'm preaching. What does this mean if you're seven years old? What does this mean if you're seven years old? And as I was thinking about this, I was reflecting upon an article that was written by J.J. Abrams in Wired Magazine a few years ago. J.J. Abrams, if you don't know, is kind of one of the premier storytellers of our day. He's been in charge of a bunch of different movies and TV, and right now he's in charge of the Star Wars series, and the new Star Wars movies coming out later this year that will end the Skywalker saga. And everybody comes to him, and he says, how is it going to end? Like, how will this end? Uh, Who is speaking in the trailer? Like, how is the whole story going to end? And what's made him such an incredible storyteller, is not always the conclusions, but that in every story he tells, there's this element of mystery that moves the narrative along, this deep mystery that's taking place, and it's moving the narrative along. And he always talks about it's the process and the journey, it's not necessarily getting to the end. And So in this article he wrote in Wired magazine a few years ago, he talks about in the early 1990s, He was uh, playing Super Mario Bros. 2 with his best friend Greg, and he was playing on the Nintendo Entertainment System. So you'll just have to journey with me here for a moment, okay? And then we'll get somewhere together, I promise. Um, So back in the 1990s, if you're playing the Nintendo Entertainment System, and for seven-year-olds this may not make sense to you at all, but you couldn't You couldn't save your progress in a video game, okay? So if you wanted to play a video game, you could play it for five minutes and that's fine. But if you really wanted to try to win the game, you had to sit there for hours upon hours upon hours. You might try to pause the game and go to sleep that night and maybe wake up and it's still there. It might not be still there though. So you know, a sibling may have turned the TV off or flipped the wrong switch and it's all gone and you have to start all over again. So JJ and his friend Greg decide to anchor down for the night and try to beat Super Mario Brothers 2, okay? And here they are, they're on their couch, they're playing Super Mario Brothers 2 together, and they get to World 7 level 2, and they're trying to jump from one cloud to another cloud, and they're unsuccessful at making this jump, and they start losing all of their Mario lives, and they've already invested 10 hours into this. It was a long Saturday, okay? And here's where the story picks up. This is JJ speaking in the Wired magazine. He says, okay, okay, Greg said, his friend, picking up the phone, I'm gonna call my cousin. Oh, this was good news. As he dialed, I kept playing and kept dying. Only 10 Mario's left. I heard Greg on the phone explaining our situation to his cousin. "Uh Uh-huh, okay, thanks, Greg said, and then he hung up the phone. Somebody's gonna call us back. Good, I said. I paused the game to take a deep breath, only to resume and subsequently die again. Oh no. A few minutes later, the phone rang. Yeah, thanks for calling, Greg said in a grim voice, like there was a family emergency. (laughs) He explained to the guy what was going on and I heard Greg say, "Uh uh-huh, okay, okay, hold on. And then Greg told me, move to the right edge, then double jump and you should get to the next cloud. Double jump, I asked? Oh good, this was information. This was new and helpful, and hope coursed through my veins. <laughs> Thanks, okay. I tried it, and I died. Ah, I did, and I died again three more times. We're only down to two Mario's left, and I was going insane. Greg reported this to the guy on the phone, and then said to me, try it one more time. Sweating, shaking my head, I tried again, and I lost my penultimate Mario, and I couldn't take it anymore, and I yelled out, will you tell that guy he has no idea what he's talking about? Greg quickly covered the mouthpiece and said to me quietly, admonishingly, dude, he's seven. <laughs> and that was when I really felt it. Cheating is humiliating. No matter what form it takes, skipping ahead, even without the help of someone in underuse, lessens the experience. It diminishes the joy. It makes the accomplishment that much duller. And perhaps that's why mystery now more than ever has special meaning, because it's the anomaly, the glaring affirmation that the age of immediacy has a meaningful downside. Mystery demands that you stop and consider, or at the very least, slow down and discover. It's a challenge to get there yourself on its terms, not yours. It turns out the seven-year-old was right, his tip finally worked, and Greg and I finished the game that day. But I traded any true satisfaction for a cheat, and I can't even remember seeing the end screen. The point is, we should never underestimate the process. The experience of doing really is everything. The ending should be the end of that experience, not the experience itself. Now, I appreciate so much of what J.J. Abrams shares in this article, but perhaps I would reinterpret it so that it's not mystery itself that moves us through on its terms, not on ours, but I think it's God that moves us through in times of deep concern and mystery. When we have been clothed with faith, love, and hope, in those places of mystery where we so desperately want to get to the end, we so desperately want to know how this ends, God will move us through those spaces. God will move us through those spaces with faith, love, and hope. Years ago, I was having lunch with my grandfather. I was having lunch with my grandfather before he died, and we were just having a nice conversation together over a sandwich and he had, um, he and I were just talking about how we knew God was at work in our life, and I asked him how he knew, and he started to tell me a story about in his early 20s when he was, uh, it was the early 1940s, and he signed up to be in the Navy, and he got shipped off to be part of a, uh, he went to a base in Florida, and, and at that base in Florida, there was a couple of platoons that were there. and then. Each of those platoons started to get shipped out one by one to different ships and to different battles that were going on during World War II. My grandfather uh, was sent out on a ship that never saw battle, never, to, never fought in any, anything, in any conflict. But the platoons of his other friends that were there at that base did. And he said on this one day where they kind of split the rest of the people into two groups, one that went with him and one went another way, this other group all went to Iwo Jima and they all died and it was a deeply devastating moment. And I remember him and I talking about this moment, and he said, that's how I knew God was with me. But then he also said, but I always wondered, like how was God with those people too? And how was God with the people who are on the other side as well? And somehow, even in just asking those questions together, those real questions about where is God in this, not having predetermined simple answers about this, I could feel that sense of faith, love, and hope being present right in the midst of this dialogue and this conversation with my grandfather. And friends, that's what moves us through these places of concern and mystery in our lives. Since we are children of the day, clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, let us be sober. This is the gift that God gives to us, friends. Let's pray. Gracious God, I know we have so many concerns and there's so much mystery surrounding the end. But Lord, we also know and we also trust that you are at work in our life. And not just my life, but all of our lives. And so, God, we seek you in the midst of it. We seek you in the mystery. We seek you in the concern. We long to be known by you, and we long to know you in those places of deep mystery in our lives. So Lord, meet us, please, we ask this, and we ask that we would grow in knowledge of you and you knowing us as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.